This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. If you have any comments or feedback for me, feel free to contact me through my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. If you enjoy these podcast episodes, you should check out the Literary Salon tab on my website and sign up for our newsletter. We are hosting some fabulous online events in 2021. Today, I am interviewing Matteo Ascarapur. Matteo's work aims to empower people of color to seize opportunities for advancement no matter the obstacle. He was a 2018 Rhode Island Writers' Colony Writer-in-Residence, and his writing has appeared in Entrepreneur, Lit Hub, Catapult, The Rumpus, Medium, and elsewhere. He lives in Brooklyn, and Black Buck is his first novel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Matteo. I am so glad you're here today to talk with me about Black Buck. How are you? I'm doing well, Cindy. My head is spinning, but in the best way. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time to come speak with me. I read this book in the fall and absolutely loved it. And as I was paging through it again this morning before we were going to speak, I thought it's a really timely story in light of last week's events and the crazy capital storming and all the violence. So your book is coming out at a good time and hopefully a lot of people will pick it up and this will make them think a little more. Most definitely. I'm hoping that it'll help people understand this moment better, as well as realizing that this moment is just connected to many others throughout our history. Absolutely. And I think that part of the story was not maybe as known to people. I mean, some people clearly, but maybe to more white people were not as aware of how far back maybe some of this began or maybe just didn't think about it is a better way to phrase it. And I think last summer's events really helped with that. But I think last week, again, reiterates that there is a big problem and your book in a funny but also very thought-provoking way addresses a lot of that. Yeah, that was that was definitely one of my aims because I wrote this book, I began it three years ago, almost to the day, and people say it's timely and it's relevant, but for many of us, these types of moments have been occurring throughout history. It's just that we didn't always have social media or there wasn't always a body cam or there wasn't a pandemic and lockdown for people to sit and watch an eight minute and 46 second video of a man being murdered. So it, it definitely speaks to what's going on now, but connects to a broader history for a lot of us. And that was one of my aims. I agree. And you put that in a much more coherent manner than I did. But I do feel like sometimes even now, after witnessing all of that and listening, I have to make sure I'm much more careful in how I word it, that it was brought to the forefront for many more people this summer and recently, but it's been what other people have been living for 200 years. Exactly. And while I do my best to be myself and and give my, my thoughts on the current reality as well as past realities, I am hopeful because more conversations are happening now than they were before. More people feel emboldened and encouraged to speak up about injustices and more people are willing to listen, I believe. So um, all of that just aids the fight for progress for all of us. I agree completely. And I usually start my podcast with asking the author to talk about their book a little bit. So for people who haven't read your book yet, maybe just give us the little small pitch about what it's about. Black Book is about a young man named Darren. He's 22. He's living in a brownstone with his mother in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. He has his girlfriend, he has his best friend, and he has his neighborhood, and his neighborhood has him. So Darren's working at a Starbucks in Midtown Manhattan. And one day, this suave CEO of a tech startup called Someone comes down and he asks for his regular. But for some reason, Darren says no, and he sells him on another drink. 
And this man, his name is Rhett Daniels. He's impressed. So he invites Darren up to the 36th floor and gives Darren an opportunity to work at his startup called Someone, S-U-M-W-N, on their sales team. Darren reluctantly joins and he soon finds out that not only is he the, the only black salesman there, he's the only black person in the entire company. So he goes through hell in order to get to the top. And once he's there, he realizes, you know, he's the token black dude and he doesn't like being the token black dude. So he hatches a plan to help other people of color infiltrate America's tech startup sales teams, redefining what it means to be a minority in the workplace. Well, I have so many questions after I've read the book twice now. So someone, first of all, I love that that name and spelled S-U-M-W-U-N. Every time I read it, I laughed. But where did you get some of the ideas for the way this tech company ran, like the conference room names and the hell week? I mean, it all seemed insane to me, but I'm, I'm sure you had to have gotten these ideas somewhere. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine being in that kind of work environment as a white woman, let alone then everything that poor Darren's going through. Yeah. Some of it is inspired by my own experience and not just having worked at a tech startup, but having interacted with many of them. There are things that are part and parcel to these tech startups, such as the naming of conference rooms. And the names vary in terms of being things directly related to the company to being more abstract and somewhat nonsensical. I just turned up the heat a little bit in terms of that startup by making them religious texts. In terms of a hell week, again, that, that's something that I've experienced. That's something that I've led across multiple companies, not to the same extent, right, as Clyde and the racism and sexism. There was none of that. But just the intensity and the psychological warfare of believing that you need to break some of these employees down, these salespeople, because they're going to endure a lot more on the phone. And they're going to endure a lot more from making 200 phone calls and having no one pick up day after day after day, but still need to fight to get to their quota. So a lot of that comes from my own experience. And there are things in the book where if someone was in sales or working at a startup, there's a whole nother dimension to their read because they see the acronyms, the ARR, the MRR, the SDR, the AM, LTV. And those are, those are things that many of us working in startups are too familiar with. Whereas a reader who has never been in those worlds will think that it's all just made up. It does sound, as, as you said before, Cindy, insane. So a lot of it is, though, absurd, to be honest. And this acronym speak, it's real. This acronym, the acronyms, they range. And I saw first-time employees, or excuse me, new employees come to the companies that I worked at, and you start throwing these acronyms at them, and they think you're speaking another language, because it is. But a good amount of it came from my own experience. And I'm not saying that I experienced everything Darren did. I actually didn't experience the overt racism that Darren does in the workplace. I experienced it outside of the workplace, especially as a teenager when I was younger. And it was important for me to translate that into Darren's experience in the workplace. Because while many of the slights that we perceive and actually do occur, occur and when I say we, I'm, I'm saying black or brown people or anyone who is the resident other in an environment, right? Whether that comes down to your sexual orientation, your gender expression, your religion, some of these slights real and perceived feel outsized in the moment, even though on the face, they seem very innocuous. And that's why it's so easy for people when you press back and say, hey, I don't like that. I don't like how that sounds or I don't like how that feels for them to gaslight you or say, hey, it was just a joke, bro. Don't be so sensitive. So again, 
not everything is one to one in terms of my experience in this book, but a good amount of it comes from things that I felt or inspired by real life events or things that, that are in the proximity of them. With respect to the racist statements and overt or not so overt, I do think you're right that the stuff that's much more subliminal, people then push back and and you're thinking, no, you had to have meant something by it. You were just trying to use it in a way that if you got called out, you could easily, well, they think they're easily defending themselves. And I think that that topic particularly seems like it has become much more prevalent in the last couple of years, the ability for people to come forward and say, it's not just these overt slights, but many other things that seem much more innocuous, but really aren't. Exactly. I mean, Cindy, racism no longer just wears a pointed white hat, right? And a robe with eyes cut out. It now wears a suit. Sometimes it's vegan. (laughs) You know, it gets its nails done. It's become, it's adapted to this world that we live in today. And because of that, sometimes it's harder to actually tell what is and what isn't racist. But for those people who experience it, you feel it in your heart. No, I agree. And I'm really hoping after next week that obviously the problem will not go away by any means, but I'm hoping it will, because it won't be allowed to be so overt and it won't be coming out of the highest office, that maybe we will get back to just a little bit less of it being acceptable front and center, if that makes sense at all. That makes sense. I mean, I do agree that I'm hopeful for it being less acceptable, but it's also very important for me to remember, and I think many people to remember that over 70 million people voted for a man that represents that, that acceptability of that mode of thinking and that belief. And I'm not going to cast those 70 million people in one bucket, but I will say that having a new president won't change everyone's hearts and it's going to take more than that. Absolutely. No, and I completely agree. I just feel like it's gotten a lot worse in the last four years. Not the thoughts themselves, but the fact that they could be acceptable to say them out loud or to gather. I mean, last week, to me, is sort of the perfect example. And not only the people that showed up last week and did what they did, but the number of people that I'm seeing on social media who are making excuses for it, I have just found so sad. I mean, I just, I know that maybe sounds sort of silly, but I've just found it really depressing. No, I don't think it sounds silly at all, right? We're all feeling a range of emotions, whether it's sadness, depression, anger, or some people on the other side, elation. But when I view those people who, who excuse what happened last week, those are the same people who called protesters savages and animals. So I'm not exactly surprised. I, I know you're right. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. It just makes you very sad for the world we're living in. But hopefully, as some of these things continue to be talked about a lot more and a lot more authors of color are having their books published, because I do think sometimes fiction can reach different people than nonfiction, and more people are likely to pick up black books sometimes than they are some of the heavier nonfiction that I, I think it can help people change their views and maybe understand that what they're thinking or doing is more hurtful than they realize. Yeah, I think fiction, I agree completely that fiction is a a great vehicle for that because a lot of the books that were lauded, especially after the murder of George Floyd and and Breonna Taylor and many other people, they were the nonfiction books that everyone ran to, right? White Fragility, How to Be Anti-Racist. And those books are incredible and necessary. But as you said, they don't reach everyone in the same way. Sometimes fiction is an easier entry point for people to put themselves into the shoes and lives of others and change their hearts as we were speaking about earlier. I think so completely. And so that's why I'm just happy to see more and more of these books. And I feel like I learn a lot from them and I'm hoping others will too. What do you hope readers take away from your book? 
Yeah, it, it really depends on who's reading it. And I think that this is tied into what we were just discussing. For my black and brown readers and others who have been the resident other in an environment like someone or even not in a workplace, right? It could be a sports team. Could be a religious organization. It could be a myriad of other things. I want them to feel seen and empowered, and to know that they have the right, just as much as everyone else, to chase their dreams and, in some cases, achieve them, and to also celebrate that which makes them different, and know that what makes them different is their superpower. For non-black and brown people who read the book, I want them to read it and to perform some honest and courageous self-examination and ask themselves, who, if anyone, are they in this narrative of the book? And what does that mean for their lives? And then extrapolate that to who, if anyone, they have been in regards to the narrative of our nation. And hopefully some of that unflinching, honest, and courageous self-examination will lead to action. I think you make some good points. And I know for me, I'm not a huge confrontational person. I'm not really a confrontational person at all. So I'm not going to be out there posting a kind of aggressive, I'm upset about this. But what it has helped me learn to do is to like in conversation to correct people. So if somebody says something that's either racist or I know is incorrect about any of these particular events, I now step in. And I know that's a small thing, but I feel like you've got to kind of do it one step at a time. And then also just to speak with my children on a regular basis, making sure we're talking about the proper news channels to watch, like what's accurate, not biased either way. And anytime they come to me with some of these crazy falsehoods that I find the correct story on a neutral site and say, no, 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 like this, that is not right and go from there. Most definitely. And I'm by no means the authority on what justifies as people doing enough. But I will say that from my perspective, having those one-to-one conversations are a lot more impactful than posting a black square on social media in solidarity. Because those one-to-one conversations, they're incredibly awkward. (laughs) <laughs> and, and hard when you have to call someone out, especially if you know this person. I mean, Cindy, I've been there and I've also been stupefied into silence at times in the past. So I will not agree that it's a small thing. It's a big thing for people to have those conversations, to call someone out, especially a relative or a close friend. It's awkward as hell <laughs> and can ruin some friendships because then that person won't feel as comfortable with you or as comfortable as spewing this I was going to say vitriol, but sometimes it's not even like that. It goes back to what we were saying before, a passive or seemingly innocuous comment. But anyway, these one-on-one conversations need to happen. They're necessary. Well, that makes me feel better because I feel bad sometimes that I'm not as forceful on social media, but I also feel like what you're saying is right, and not even just the black squares, but when people are posting all this very emphatic stuff, I sometimes think people tune them out so that instead when you're talking to someone you do know well, like a family member or a close friend or another relative, that yes, if you, especially if you say it in kind of a kind way, well, you know, I was just reading this article and that's actually not right and just trying to kind of address it, but not put them off kilter. Yeah, because you do have to push that line of comfortability. But this also points to the fact that sometimes what goes on on social media is performative. And the people who are in tune and who know what a true ally is can see through it. That's all I'll say. But again, what I believe is is most impactful are these one-on-one conversations and things that actually push the needle forward beyond uh, a statement of allyship. 
Well, that's good to hear. (laughs) I was so excited when I saw that Jenna picked your book for her January book club selection. I love her picks, Oprah's picks, Reese's picks, The Good Morning America. I always follow those four just to see which books they've selected. And I very frequently align with Jenna. So I was very happy. I was like, oh, that was a book I loved this month. So I want to hear all about it. Can you tell me about it? Yeah. So I don't even remember when it was. This may have been two months ago more. uh, Everything is really a blur right now, Cindy. But I got an email saying that uh, Jenna picked Black Buck for her book club. Of course, I was elated just having your work selected for something where only 12 of anything are selected per per year is huge. And I was excited because to, to remain authentic, the people who populate Jenna's book club, most of them weren't who I had in mind when I wrote the book. Right. And and I was excited, though, because these these are people who may or may not have ever met someone like Buck or the people in his neighborhood. They probably might not even know anyone who works at someone like that as well, though. So I was super excited for them to engage with the material, for me to be able to interact with them and hear their thoughts while also remaining my authentic self and being curious as to how they would receive me. And so far, it has been overwhelmingly positive, Cindy. It's just been incredible. And regardless of who I initially had in mind when I wrote this book, who I created it for first and foremost, I am just eternally grateful for anyone who takes the time out of their day to read this book. Because it's time, and this is going to get big and existential, but it's time we can't get back. And, and I, I like to respect that. On a more granular level, what's most important for me when someone reads this book is that they feel something. I want them to feel something. I don't want people to read the book and forget about it or say, ha, that was whatever. It doesn't really matter to me. So the fact that so many people are feeling things that is then leading to critical thought, that is then leading to some action on their part, is just a gift. But getting back to the read with Jenna, so super excited to be picked. I actually still haven't spoken with Jenna yet. We're going to have an event. But yeah, got, got it picked and then worked with them on some marketing materials that we haven't released yet. And for me, I'm trying to add my own flair to everything I do in this industry as it relates to my book. I want the promo to feel like me. I want people to know me as a person first before even an author. And sometimes it's the other way around. They read the book and then want to get to know me. And the Read with Jenna folks at the Today Show have been extremely receptive to me adding my own flair. And I don't want to give too much away but we're going to release some material that they've never released before on their on their Instagram or in the social media for their audience. And I can't wait to see how people engage with it and react to it. But again, Sydney, I mean, I'm just, I'm definitely happy to be picked for it. Well, I can't wait to see all of that. Will you be sharing some of it on your Instagram too? Uh, I most definitely will. Yeah, I most definitely will. Okay, good. I would also love to talk a little bit about the format. I love different formats for books. And I thought this sales manual format and him talking to the reader was very clever. I really liked it. And the little sales tips throughout. So how did you come up with that? Yeah. So the first night I began the book, I don't even write at night, Cindy, but it just struck me to begin writing that night. I had the idea for the book beforehand, a couple of months beforehand that I've been refining. But that first night, even though I didn't know where the book was going to go, I knew that I wanted it 
to not just be an engaging narrative to suck people in and not let them go, but to also double as a manual of sorts that would help people, first black and brown people, and then anyone be able to better their own lives and the lives of those that they love through learning more about sales and how sales tips and strategies translate into life. Whether that means asking for more money in one of those nerve-wracking interviews or advocating for yourself or other people in your community or for the causes that you champion. I just believe that everything in life is sales. And even though the connotation of sales is sleazy and like a used car salesman who's trying to get you or, or get your credit card, I believe that there are a lot more positives than cons. So that's why I wanted to double as a sales manual. But What's interesting to me, and, and I think will be interesting to readers to hear, is that I didn't add those sales tips and asides until the fourth draft of the book. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It, it really came from the combination of a few different materials that I'd read. So years ago, when I got into sales, I was handed two books by a guy named Jeffrey Gittimer. Or the books were written by Jeffrey Gittimer, and I was handed them, I was handed them from a co-founder of the startup that I worked at. And it was the Little Red Book of Selling and the Sales Bible. And these books are sales manuals and they, they have glossy pages and, and beautiful cloth wrapped covers and they're hardcover. And those books were just so engaging to me from this author, Jeffrey Gittimer, that they stayed with me. And then before that, I had actually read How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia by Mohsen Hamed. And each chapter begins with a maxim of how someone can get filthy rich in rising Asia, such as befriend a bureaucrat, stash money away, things like that, manipulate X, Y, Z. But it was really when I was reading The Residue Years by Mitchell S. Jackson, and he breaks the fourth wall where he would just say, sort of on the low, people, and then comma, and then write something. So it was reading that book and then having those other two books in my head and me already knowing that I wanted to be a sales manual that said, whoa, why don't I just break the fourth wall? But then I wanted to take it a step further. I didn't want to just break, a, break the fourth wall. I wanted to be super conspicuous. So I bolded it and then I set it apart from the preceding and succeeding paragraphs. And that helped me really hit home this self-help sales manual memoir device to it. And I'm just, I feel grateful that, that it all hit me to do that because people have really been enjoying it. Yeah, it's very clever. So I definitely enjoyed that part and I enjoyed, you know, focusing on those and the maxims that start out each section of the book. The format worked out great. And like I said, I always really like different formats in books because it just kind of puts you into a different headspace and just usually makes me enjoy the story more. So I was glad you did it that way. Great. Yeah, I'm happy to. For me, writing this book, a big part was just not judging myself and allowing myself to have fun. And I don't have a formal writing background. So I believe that in some ways it helped me. In other ways, it definitely created more work. But in some ways it helped me. And I think that breaking the fourth wall is an example of a way that I wasn't so entrenched in the constructs or standards of writing a book. Right. Hampered by those rules that people feel like they have to follow 10% and 20% and that kind of stuff. Well, I'm a huge cover person, Mateo. And actually, the whole reason I initially grabbed your book was because of the cover. I am definitely, I go against the judge a book by a cover. I very much judge books by their covers. And I just thought the cover was fantastic. So did you have a role in that? I did. I can't say enough good things about HMH. 
my publisher, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And I know that for some people, especially writers who begrudge their publishers for different transgressions or slights, I know it can come off as pandering or being their black front man. But I, I literally have nothing bad to say about them. And, and the way that the cover came about is one example. So I'll just tell you the story. They had sent me a cover before what we have now, a couple months before. And I thought that it was striking in a good way, but there were some things that were off. And I'm all about letting people do their jobs, especially when it comes to art and, and the cover of a book. I understand that my artistic sensibilities may not align with helping promote a book or making sure that it's a book that, for example, you would say, hey, that looks good and you'd want to pick it up. But I always give my opinion, though, in a respectful way. I don't hold back. So I let them know my thoughts, and they said, okay, we're going to go back to the drawing board. They didn't say, well, Mateo, this is what it is. You're the author. We're the publisher. They said, okay, well, we're going to go back to the drawing board. So they went back to the drawing board, and then they presented me with a handful of designers to choose from, like a month or two later. And I chose one, and then I don't know how long it, it took. Maybe a month later, they came back to me and said, we actually didn't work with that designer, but we have this other design. And they sent me this cover. And my first thought was, I'm not going to lie. I said, what's this little bill shit? And I showed it to a friend and I said, man, I don't know about this. So I, <laughs> I shared my thoughts with HMH after chatting about it with my agent. And then they said, okay, we could, we could work on something else, but let us send you what's known as a dummy book. And for listeners who don't know, a dummy book is basically a fake book or an existing book that's going to be around the same size that, that an author's book will be when it comes out. But they print out a cover or a proposed cover and just wrap that, wrap that fake book in it. And they send it to you so that you could see what it'll look like physically. And I said, all right, I mean, there's going to be a psychological aspect. Again, right, I was in sales, I'm aware. There's going to be a psychological aspect of when I hold this book in my hands, even though it's a fake book, but with this proposed cover, I'm going to say, wow, this is in my hands, right? This is what the real book's going to be like. And I actually told my editor, I said, I'm good. You don't need to send me this dummy book. Like, uh, I don't want the cover. She said, well, it's already in the mail. So they sent it to me and it worked. I put it at one end of my apartment and I looked and I was like, okay, wow, that's like popping. And then I walked around Brooklyn. I, I walked past Greenlight Bookstore, for example, and I stood like 20 feet away and I said, what, what would it look like if my book was behind this display? Would I be able to see it from 20 feet away? Especially if I'd seen it once, would I be able to recognize it? And it was a resounding yes. And then what really hit home for me, Cindy, was I was staring at the book one day within those first few days after it was sent to me. And I said, wow, this moment of this hand holding this coffee cup represents one of the biggest inflection points in the book. When Darren sells Rhett on that new drink, and I don't believe the designers had that in mind, but for me, it pierced the core of me, and I said, okay, this is it. And then after some back and forth and a few other things, we decided that this was the cover. Initial feedback they got from different accounts was great, and I said, let's go all in on it. And wow, people have said, yeah, they judge a book by its cover, and it got them in, so here we are. Well, I think everything you just said was exactly what I liked about it. Before I'd read it, I felt it was very eye-catching. I think it caught my attention in a newsletter or something, and so then I you know, requested it. And then when it came, it's, it's just 
so eye-catching and different, which is what I loved about it. And then once I read the book, I was like, it's the perfect cover for your story. Because I always kind of look at the cover before I read, and then I look at the cover again after I read. I spend a lot of time on this whole cover thing. It drives me crazy if I'll finish a book and I'm like, well, that was a pretty cover, but what the heck does it have to do with the story? And obviously this is your story. I mean, like where he got started and his original group of friends and what he did. And so I just thought it was perfect. And and like you said, Cindy, it's different. And I imagine this cover standing out among other covers. For example, if you walk into a bookstore and there's the new fiction and these are adult books, this doesn't jump out at you as the typical adult fiction cover. So I said, maybe that'll work in our favor. And hopefully it has been. We'll see. No, that's a pet peeve of mine when you see one cover and then suddenly you see 10 more that look so similar. So I think that is also why I really liked it because it will stand out to people and it's different and people are going to be like, oh, I want to see what that's about. It doesn't look like any of these other current covers that I see. But now I'm going to be stuck thinking about Little Bill too every time I look at it. <laughs> little Bill. I remember when I was in a Little Bill. <laughs> well, I have loved talking with you. And before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Oof. How to Make a Slave, it's nonfiction by Gerald Walker. That book, I loved it because it was actually very similar to Black Buck and that it's a nonfiction book by a black man. And he's talking about the horrors of what it's like to be him or his particular type of black man in America. But he, he uses humor, just like in Black Buck, to underscore it and to show the hilarity in his daily life and in these daily slights, which just really spoke to me, especially at this point in my life when it's very easy to get sucked in by the proverbial undertow of everything that's going on and all these events and, and feeling depressed and despair and, and asking yourself, does my life matter? Do people actually care whether I live or die or whether I become a headline? So his book, just the humor that he was able to handle these, these heavy topics with really spoke to me. And I know you didn't ask, but one book that I'm looking forward to reading so much is The Prophets by Robert S. Jones. Our books came out on the same day. We've been speaking almost every day. And he has been someone who I've been able to be frank with about where I am in this process. And I think that I've also been able to be the listening board that he needed as well. So I just can't wait to read it. I've been seeing that book everywhere. Everywhere. And heard such great things about it also. So yes, that looks like a very good one. Well, I know you're busy, so I really, really appreciate your taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, Mateo. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. I'm so happy to have been here. Thank you, Sydney. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Mateo's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? 
Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.